from KIOS in Omaha. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Leah Cates, who writes for the reader and compiled Queer Nebraska, a timeline commemorating milestones in LGBTQ Nebraska history as part of the reader's pride feature. Maybe it's not as far behind as we think it is. I, I, and I think that the other thing is, as we're saying, oh, Nebraska's so far behind, that implies that the East and West are radically more liberal and more progressive, which is also not necessarily true. There's homophobia everywhere, and there's also progress everywhere. Leah and I talk journalism, Nebraska, escaping Nebraska, what history might look like if it were more inclusive. Stay tuned for that conversation right here on Riverside Chats. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Leah Cates, who writes for The Reader and compiled Queer Nebraska, a timeline, which commemorates milestones in LGBTQ Nebraska history as part of The Reader's Pride feature and seeks to broadcast voices from Nebraska's vibrant queer community spotlighting the struggles and strengths of LGBTQ Nebraskans. Queer Nebraska, a timeline, is available on the reader's site and print edition, which is out now. Here is my conversation with Leah Cates. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Yeah. Well, so I, I wanted to talk, uh, I mean, we will get to specifically your work in the Queer Nebraska timeline, but... I mean, doing journalism now and then doing the type of progressive journalism that you do in Omaha, I feel like there's some questions of, I, I don't know about you, but it, when I do even this show sometimes, it's sort of like, I'd see these municipal elections happen. I talk to all these cool progressive candidates. And then like in this last one, a lot of them just get clobbered at the actual, uh, you know, in the election itself. And so, so sometimes I'm just like, what, what, who is who is it for? You know, like, is Nebraska capable of changing? Is it always going to be the same? Do you struggle with any of those types of questions? For sure. I think I, you know, we all had that feeling, too, about the elections. We did a lot of election coverage um, at the Reader, obviously, you know, un- unbiased <laughs> coverage. But, yeah, I think... In general, we were hoping that, you know, maybe the activist community, you know, in Omaha could bring in some of those more liberal candidates. Definitely some disappointment there. But, you know, if we don't write about it, if we don't keep sharing these stories, then nothing will change. And, you know, I know the people whose stories we're sharing definitely do appreciate it. And, yeah, you know, I got to just keep keep hoping for change. And, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think there is some progress, hopefully, with how far, you know, some women of color candidates got the fact they were even running. And I actually just had a friend visiting last night um, from out of town, and I was telling her about the liberal pockets in, in Omaha and, you know, how District 2 went blue and, you know, that kind of thing. So, Yes. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of the fact that uh, I think our congressional district swung the furthest away from Trump of any congressional district in the country, and then this municipal election happens? I mean, how do you, how do you square that? What happened there? I don't know. Gosh, I, yeah, ugh. I I don't have a great answer for that. I wish I did. Um, yeah, for just from the journalistic perspective, we were all. There was one reporter at the Reader who was like, I he was like, I kind of feel like this isn't going to end well. And then he was like, See, you know, I I was right the morning out, and we we're all like, Oh, you know. But um, but you just got to keep writing and keep <laughs> pushing forward and keep telling people stories. So. So, are you from Omaha originally? So I grew up in Massachusetts originally. Um, I lived there for the first 14 years of my life. Moved to Omaha with just a few weeks left in my, or six weeks left, I think, in my eighth grade year. Uh, Moved to be closer to family. I I grew up visiting Omaha, so I knew the area. 
And then I did high school out here, went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is in New York State for four years of college, planned to move to the city, do a publishing course through NYU when I graduated, and then COVID hit, and I came home for spring break thinking, this is the last time I'll be home. I'm moving to New York after this. And then I was like, oh, yeah, nope, I'm I'm not going home. So unexpectedly uh, ended up here, which, you know, in some ways I had envisioned myself in New York, you know, in a very different place um, for these years. But I landed at the Reader, obviously, and I'm really glad to be having this experience. Um, I'm actually planning to go to graduate school in fall of 2022, um, and that will be anywhere, you know, in the country. Not not sure quite where yet, but during my time in Omaha, you know, been making the most of it. So. It'll be anywhere that's not Omaha. And it will not not as <laughs> so. I want to go uh, to a women's and gender studies PhD program. Okay. Um, and those are scattered throughout the country, and there are not any in Omaha. So it's not like I have to leave. Omaha right now and that's why I'm going to grad school it's just like where they are there's like a surprisingly good program in Kentucky even so like randomly yeah so we'll you know we'll see where I end up but so what was it like when you moved here when you were you said you were 14 I was 14 at the time yeah um you know I'd grown up like visiting Omaha as I said I was very excited because all of my family lives out here and I have cousins who are a bit older than me and all girls and I thought they were the coolest people ever and I was so excited to move near them and they have kids so that was really fun Uh, you know I was very focused on school during that time and my grades and getting into college and those sorts of things and I kept my head down I think and I didn't really start to think a lot about what the social issues, you know, in Omaha look like. I, You know, I come from a white privileged background and I didn't think a ton about that. In high school, I considered myself to be liberal and, you know, sure, wanting progress and social justice. But it wasn't until I went to Vassar that my eyes kind of, you know, opened to, mm-hmm. to those sorts of things. So I think that coming back and moving back to Omaha this time was more jarring and I, you know, have more drive to, to change things and to get more involved in the community than I was in high school. So almost more of a transition the second time around that I moved back here. Yeah. So, I mean, was journalism always the direction you wanted to go in? So I was editor-in-chief. I was always very strong with writing and editing, and I became editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper at Elkhorn South and did that for two years and was like, that was great. Never going to do that again. Like, this, you know, <laughs> this was that was so, you know, intense, and I want to focus on other things. So I gradually got sucked in over the course of four years to my college newspaper to the point where I was once again editor-in-chief and was pulling all-nighters multiple times a week because that's what editor, editors-in-chief do at Vassar and probably at every other college. Through, you know, it was like 7 p.m. till 4 a.m. on, you know, Tuesday nights and then back in the office for six hours, you know, on Wednesdays. Um, and it was like, that was great. I'm going to graduate and do something really different from that. And then I didn't. Um, and, then, and now I'm at the reader. And yeah, so I keep just getting pulled back into it, I think, because I love writing so much and I love telling people's stories and I love meeting people. I just I love the whole process. And when I go to graduate school, I don't necessarily want to lose journalism and start doing more academic writing exclusively. I want to one of the reasons that I'm interested in in academics and academia is I think that it's written in a little bit too of a stuffy and inaccessible way, and I want to make it more accessible. And I would love to combine journalism with academic writing, um, especially because one of my interests is women and gender in popular culture. And I think that you can reach a lot of people and you know create an impact that way, writing about it if you write it in a more access- accessible manner that people want to and are able to read. So yeah, well, I mean, as far as 
being accessible, it's kind of a weird time for journalism as well because people are able to sort of pick out the reality that they want to live in by reinforcing things that they want that they choose sure, to follow yeah. on Twitter or whatever it might be. So, I mean, journalism in general, uh, a lot of people seem like they're saying, you know, don't go into it because, you know, uh, even the established journalists, a lot of them are going to blogs or YouTube or whatever. So, I mean, do you have uh, hesitation about trying to, like, you know, if, if, it, if you could, I guess – Journalism now versus 50 years ago when you have Woodward and Bernstein, you know, and these like superheroes taking down Nixon. It feels like I don't know if we have that now. I don't know if it can have that impact. I mean, do you feel like journalism? I mean, are you uh, are you cynical about uh, the, the industry at the moment? I think that there is some truth to the whole like people aren't reading print journalism as much. Like I know with the reader, that's not even necessarily where we make most of our revenue from, you know, selling print copies, but I really still do think there's a future for it with how interconnected people are on platforms like Twitter, you know, just online, digital media, like people are still reading Rolling Stone, they're still reading Vice, they're still reading Vulture, they're still following those people on social media. Um, Actually, the way that I got started at The Reader was there's a writer that I love at Rolling Stone, her name is Brittany Spanos, and I reached out to her and was like, hey, I love your work. Do you want to talk to me about, you know, how I could become you, you know, do what you do? And she was really generous with her time and said yes. And she said, you should look into if you have any alt weeklies nearby and try to intern at those. And that's how I wound up at The Reader. Uh, So I think, yes, getting back to your original question, that there is a future for it in the digital sphere because people are so connected. And if that writing is written in an accessible way, people are going to want to read that and like click through the whole article. So I'm optimistic about it as it functions in the digital world. Yeah. Well, it seems like the the subjects that you focused on, at least recently, are they do have a, a progressive angle. So, I mean, I guess as far as the question of you're in Omaha right now, uh, even Queer Nebraska, a timeline, it seems like that is a project that there are a lot of people who will just not want to read because it doesn't align with the world that they've chosen to live in, right? So, I mean, are you are you conscious of trying to reach people who maybe are in the more conservative or maybe just, you know, sort of a different sphere than the one that you you are in and working within? Yeah, that's a really good question and something I think we could focus on more and, and have more conversations about at The Reader. You know, I do know that people, I have, the role that I have there is not just reporting. I do some other things as well, and I have access to the subscription list, and I was surprised looking through recently that a Republican, you know, politician in Omaha, like, actually subscribes to The Reader. So I'm yeah, I think that there is some of that readership. There are people who start following us because they know that we're a trustworthy news source, and then that kind of thing might come up in their feed and, like, hey, they might click on it. Um, you know, I think the way that I present it, I hope, is not in some radical leftist way, like, whoa, we're going to, we're do- indoctrinating everybody. It's just telling factual human stories. And I hope that if somebody, you know, I think that we do get some conservative eyes on our work, and I hope that when they, you know, click on it, they'll see, they'll be engaged, they'll be like, oh, this is a narrative story, and just have their eye opened, even if it doesn't radically shift what they're thinking, you know, they might be like, wow, I didn't realize that that those people, you know, existed in that way and existed in Omaha, you know, that their mm-hmm. eyes at least will be open to it. And that could even start something. I'm not trying to shift anybody's opinion in, you know, in one article, but it at least might 
create a little spark that gets them thinking. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, I mean, that seems like a good segue to start talking about the specific uh, queer Nebraska timeline, as well as, I mean, I wonder if there's a connection to, like, when you live in Massachusetts, I'm sure there are stereotypes about Nebraska. Uh, and then this timeline itself seems like, in some ways, it's trying to broaden the history that people have accepted that is more stereotypical about Nebraska is this monolithic sort of culture, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that there is a, there is a lot of, and I was actually emailing uh, Courtney about this before I came here, but I think that there, yeah, is a stereotype that, you know, all of queer liberation happened on the coasts and yeah, everything happened there. But queer liberation and queer people have always existed in every place in the world since the beginning of time. Like that, that's just how it is. And I, I you know, I, I didn't know much about queer history in Nebraska. Or I didn't really know anything going into it, but I was like, I'm going to find things because it exists, because of course it's here. And, and you know, and I got a million people responding on Twitter, like, yes. So yeah, I think, I'm forgetting what your original question well, no, was, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've, yeah. you've responded to it. Yeah. I mean, part of the question, I guess, is just like, what what's the genesis of this concept? And was it specifically supposed to broaden the, our idea of what Nebraska has been? Yeah, you know, actually, the way the genesis of it was we were the reader is great with content related to people of color and communities of color. Uh, We just haven't we realized we're like, whoa, we don't have very much about sexuality specifically, you know, or transgender people or, you know, anything like that. So I had started an article on the experience of transgender kids in schools, which it's, it's still in the works right now. Uh, And I was like, hey, I'm willing to do more coverage here. And Pride Month was coming up and we were sitting in an editorial board meeting and the publisher of the whole thing, John Heaston, was like, "Okay, I want an LGBTQ, like a big timeline for Pride Month, you know, trying to get more LGBTQ coverage. This is a good place to start. You know, we'll go from there. He was like, you know, and I was like, hey, like, I, you know, I'm willing to try doing more of that stuff. And, And, you know, and then it and then it grew from there. So. That was very much the genesis of it. And, yeah, I think that when I was excited and, you know, starting the project, I was like, yeah, I hope that this does show people that this history exists in Nebraska because, you know, I know that it does. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, and and when I started reaching out to people on Twitter and other ways, like I had people, I had somebody who's really into LGBTQ history in Nebraska specifically and has written Wikipedia articles. He reached out to me and was like, yeah, I would love to, you know, and we talked on the phone and he, you know, gave me all kinds of information. I had other community members who don't even know as much about history specifically, but, you know, they did a little bit of research and they thought about it, you know, just even recently things that had happened in their lives. And they sent me timelines and I was able to compile all of that together. So the response was definitely overwhelming to that. So, I mean, the timeline itself starts fairly recently, right? So, I mean, how did you figure out when exactly it would start? I mean, for example, you talked about how you know, queer people have been in Nebraska really since the beginning of Nebraska or before that even really, like the beginning of humans being here probably. But the timeline itself starts in about the mid-20th century. What was what was the decision making there on where to focus on at the beginning? Yeah, you know, I could have started at the beginning of time. That was something when I started this, I was like, oh, no, we could be here a while. Like, <laughs> what is about, you know, where, could, where are we going to start? Uh, and I definitely wanted to put something about the Native American community because, like I wrote, they, you know, two spirit people were long seen and accepted. Um, and two spirit means that somebody, you know, can have both feminine and masculine traits, you know, as a member of that community. Um, there's a lot of great resources online to learn more from people who are far more educated than I am about it. But I definitely wanted to put something about that because it wasn't until colonization that people started, you know, imposing Western and white viewpoints of a strict gender binary onto those people. So I wanted to mention something about that. And then I was like, okay, if I'm going through 
1701 this happened 1702 like we're never gonna end, we're never gonna stop this so I you know I went by when people who were giving me events I just kind of the earliest that they were they gave me and then I did a little bit of research myself to make sure nothing major was missing and I identified from somebody uh his name is Jameson Wyatt he was the person who gave me the information I know Jameson oh you do yeah, okay. okay great yeah so we, we had been in touch about it uh he knows about history and he was the had kind of the earliest event and was saying you know even back in the 30s in Lincoln there was a vibrant queer community and you know I looked and I was like okay that's a that's a good place to start and then have a little gap and I, and I wanted to focus a lot on the 70s and 80s because there is just a lot of queer history in Nebraska and I think you know all over there so I was surprised yeah. no Willa Cather oh yeah well could I could you know it's fine I can I can still yeah, add, I'm actually still planning on adding a few things to it. There okay. was uh, somebody, John Skyle Skinner, who was the historian. He's not he's not a historian, but he's a big history buff um, in Omaha. And he had been, you know, sending he had sent me a lot of things. And he emailed me afterwards and actually has another picture that I can add to it. Um, there was um, and he had one small critique of the way that I was talking about uh, sodomy. So I'm going to go in and edit that as well. Um, so those were really helpful things. I appreciate that. And also. Jay Irwin was the first trans member of the Ralston School Board, and I think maybe any school board in Nebraska. Um, and he and I actually, I interviewed him for the Trans Kids in School article, too, that I'm working on. And he just DM'd me on Twitter and was like, hey, you left me out. And I was like, sorry, Jay. <laughs> so I'm going to add that back in as well. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it can be a growing, evolving project. I'll add That's that cool. to my mental list. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't mean it as a criticism. <laughs> no, I, no, I wonder no. if there was like a reason why. I yeah. appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with writer Leah Cates, who compiled Queer Nebraska, a timeline, commemorating milestones in LGBTQ Nebraska history. And it's available now through the reader as part of their Pride feature this June. Well, so uh, as far as compiling this, did it change your perspective of Nebraska history in any meaningful way? I, I think, you know, again, going into it, I assume that there would be a history there. But, you know, I think I'll definitely think about things differently, knowing specifically all the, you know, all these different things that happened, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, gay bars that have, you know, come and gone, but, you know, were there for a while. Um, you know, one of the, I, I think I didn't realize how big, you know, I expected things to be there, but not necessarily like the first this, the first that happened here, like big things. And there was like the first, one of the first queer cla- classes about queer people ever yeah. was taught at UNO. I, yeah, I believe. Uh, so things like like bigger things like that, I wasn't necessarily expecting to find, but I did, and I'm like, whoa, Nebraska, nice, you know. So, yeah. So I mean, that surprises me too. The 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 class as something where we think about uh, Nebraska, it, you know, the Midwest in general. One of the stereotypes is that it takes you know an extra few decades for anything to really get here. <laughs> but then, so it looks like. Uh, Lou Crompton yeah. at UNL has the first class in, uh, let's see, the pro seminar in homophile studies, one of the nation's first courses on LGBTQ issues. I mean, so something like that happening, I guess, well, how, how does that happen at UNL? Uh, you know, how does that, if the Midwest is so far behind, why are we one of the first uh, places that has a class on, on the subject? Yeah, you know, maybe it's not as far behind as we think it is. I, I, and I think that the other thing is, as we're saying, Oh, Nebraska's so far behind, that implies that the East and West are radically more liberal and more progressive, which is also not necessarily true. There's homophobia everywhere, and there's also progress everywhere. And I think that that's, you know, something to keep in mind. So what were some of the other things that stood out to you? I mean, some of the other either firsts or just people you encountered that, uh, you know, that you'd want to talk a little bit more about here in your timeline? 
Yeah, definitely. I should mention this. The Queer Omaha Archives, they do a great job. That's obviously at University of Nebraska Omaha, uh, and they do a great job of documenting queer history there. That was a huge resource to me. So they have old newspaper archives, you know, gay newspaper archives, old gay magazine archives, really, like, amazing. You can access any of this online and see it all scanned in. Um, They have, you know, paraphernalia from back in the day. They have, they've also started doing a project where they interview members of the queer community, which is pretty amazing. It's called, I think, Voices or something. And, you know, and they have lengthy interviews with them and you can listen to those online. And then some of the objects you can go in person and see them. And it's an ongoing project. They're still compiling things. And I was in charge, I was in touch with somebody from there who provided me a preliminary timeline that they've been working on. And I certainly took some things from there as well. So that's a huge resource. And that was actually another thing. I even put the creation of that on the timeline. I was really surprised to see that they had that. Uh, And not even necessarily because it was Nebraska, just because I guess that's not something that I was thinking a state, you know, university or city university would would have like that. Um, But I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Another thing that was fun to include was the fact that Roxanne Gay is from Omaha. She's really cool. I've loved her work for a long time. I actually... Uh, during my Vassar years, got to watch her speak live once. That was pretty cool. And, you know, I've read some of her books. So she's a queer uh, black writer and journalist and professor who has a massive Twitter following and a massive, you know, book following and newsletter following um, and just does really cool things for, yeah, the queer movement, also for people of color, uh, also with body positivity, um, eating disorders, all, you know, she has her feet in a lot of different, a lot of different camps and produces a lot of really powerful work. And she's from here and she'll mention Omaha, Nebraska on her Twitter and in her books. And it's just really cool that we have somebody like that from here. So, yeah, I think if, if the main stereotype, typical, like a uh, celebrity person to come out of, or of Nebraska is Larry, the cable guy, Roxanne <laughs> Gay is a good, uh, sort of like, well, no, we, we could complicate this pretty quick with one more person. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. She, yeah. <laughs> Polar opposite. So what did you see or talk about it, Professor? She was talking about her book, Bad Feminist, uh, published in 2014, I believe. Um, and that's, that's a cool book. It talks about how you can be a bad feminist but still be a feminist. So she goes on about how she likes music that objectifies women and she loves the color pink and all these things that make her a bad feminist. Um, it's an it's a book of essays, so that's what one essay is about. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, I saw her talk about that book. And also in that book, she writes about her experience, you know, her early years being a professor. So was talking about that as well. It was it was a combination between a reading of select essays and also a discussion of, you know, what what was going on in those essays and going through her head. She had a really great sense of humor and just a very nice, down to earth, fun person to, you know, listen to her talk. So now, if, when your own personal uh, exposure to sort of, I guess, queer culture, we might call it, which I know can encompass so many different things, but for lack of a better you know, umbrella term here, how much of that were you exposed to as a kid growing up in Massachusetts? And was it any different than your experience in Nebraska? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, I was just told people are gay and that's fine. And we're pretty far along in life. We're pretty far along in history and they're accepted and don't worry about it. You know, we had a a brief unit. I think she was trying her best, you know, on that kind of thing in in social studies with my social studies teacher who was really, really wonderful. Um, Yeah, I just I never gave a ton of thought to it. It was just like, oh, it's fine. That's how it is. Like some people are gay and that's fine. And then 
and again, it wasn't until I went to college and met more queer people and took classes on gender and sexuality that I was like, things are not okay. These people encounter an incredible amount of, you know, discrimination. And, you know, there's a whole field called queer theory, and people are really challenging norms of gender and sexuality. And I think one thing I really uh, underestimated was just how gender binary and just heteronormative my entire childhood was. Like, even thinking to high school, like prom king, prom queen, girls sports, boys sports, everything, you know, was centered around that binary growing up. And I never once in all of those 18 years gave a single thought to what if somebody's non-binary or what if somebody's not sure what their gender is? What is that experience like? It just never entered my head. And now I'm like, wow, that, you know, everything was not okay, contrary to what I was told. So, Well, so, I mean, going to Vassar, you said, is when that – so basically just being exposed to some of the – the writings on this or what was it that was opening your mind in that sense? Yeah, definitely. I would say so I majored in women's and gender studies because sexuality and gender is so in, like in the study of it is so interesting to me. Uh, yeah, so definitely, you know, readings that we did, we read about Judith Butler, who has a theory, um, and this is a very condensed version of her theory. She's a very long, complicated writer, but basically that gender is an elaborate performance. Like that was, you know, a reading that was really important to me. And, you know, I read a lot of women of color, Audrey Lord, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, her theory of intersectionality that you know, all of your different identities create a unique experience. So if you're a black woman, you're probably going to have a tougher time of it and encounter unique challenges than if you're a white woman or, you know, a white man. Um, So those kinds of readings. And also Vassar is very discussion-based. So, you know, there's, there's some lecture. So definitely, sure, like hearing, I have a lot of mentors, a lot of professors, hearing them talk, but also just discussing the readings in class and bouncing ideas off of my classmates who came in, I think a lot of them actually a little bit further ahead than I did in terms of what they knew and what they had been researching about gender and sexuality. Um, And I'm not sure if that's because they were getting that kind of thing from social media and from talking to people. And I just kept my head down and was like, I need straight A's throughout high school, you know, so I'm not. But um, yeah, so I think that that was really where I started to think about those things. And also just a lot of my friends are are queer and, and very liberal um, and, and just talking into activist, you know, kind of things. Um, so I think talking to them and getting to know them as well. I'm talking with Leah Cates, who compiled Queer Nebraska, a timeline commemorating milestones in LGBTQ Nebraska history, and which is now available through the reader as part of their pride feature this June. We'll continue the conversation after this break. Hello? Want to be a manchi boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesis. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we need to. Yeah. It sounds like haha. Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. Uh, 
and welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today I'm talking with Leah Cates, who compiled Queer Nebraska a Timeline, commemorating milestones in LGBTQ Nebraska history, and which is now available through the reader as part of their Pride feature this June. Here's the rest of our conversation. So have you ever gone down, I, I took a, a graduate class where we read a lot about just trying to define the word queer yeah. and what exactly it means. And I mean, it, usually it just kind of comes down to it can mean a lot of different things. But uh, like I know uh, I read like uh, Sedgwick, Epistemology of the Closet, and just, you know, I'm talking with uh, Melissa Homestead, who's at UNL. Talk, I probably talked to Jameson about this idea too. But can, I mean, do you have a working definition for what exactly we all can qualify as queer or if somebody isn't familiar with it, how, how do you start to sort of go down that rabbit hole? That's a good question, and it's a difficult answer. I would say a a preliminary answer is that anything that deviates from the white, cisgender, heterosexual norm that we've socially constructed in U.S. society um, and in other society and in other parts of the world as well. So anything that deviates from that is, you know, you encounter unique challenges. You have a unique experience. Um, So, you know, that's something that yeah, I would consider that queer. Um, it's it's a it's a tough question though, and it means different things to different people. And you know, people who identify as queer, you know, might give you a different answer. Um, so, so did yeah. you have like when you are compiling your history, then what all would qualify as sort of a queer Nebraska history? How do you how do you you know narrow it down? Yeah, I would say anything related to like lesbian, gay, transgender, um, asexual, intersex, you know, issues, things like that. I was talking to people and sometimes they would mention you know feminist issues which certainly you know to be feminist you have to be inclusive of the queer community there's not a feminism that is racist or a feminist that's not, that's not feminism then if you're not including queer people and people of color uh but things that were just like yay like for women in general including cisgender heterosexual women like i you know i was more focused on things that you know people who identified as gay or transgender that that's kind of how I tried to, you know, keep my definition throughout the time. So, And did you see, I mean, through the history, were there trends that, uh, like, is there more of an understanding of these terms by people who maybe don't identify as queer in some way or maybe who, uh, you know, just don't have as much exposure? Kind of like you talking about it took going to college, it took really thinking about some of this. There are a lot of people who, uh, you know, who stay in Nebraska who maybe have some exposure to it, but maybe you're not uh, doing the deep dive. I mean, do you, do you feel like it's becoming more, uh, you know, is the popular culture being more understanding? Is there just more awareness? Is the closet a little bit less prominent? What, what did you notice? Yeah, I think that it is. And again, I think social media and like the internet does a lot of this, uh, a lot of this work. And I think people are, they're at least encountering it more, but I, you know, so and I think in those ways it is becoming more to the surface and people are more likely to talk about it. But I don't think that that means like, oh, look at how great they people, queer people have it today because there still is so much homophobia with that. There are still people who look at it and roll their eyes and say, oh, pronoun, what, you know, why do pronouns matter? People, you know, just because people have heard of pronouns and even just because people have heard of pronouns and are liberal does not mean that they are willing to use people's correct pronouns or to think that it's legitimate or, you know, like, why can't I, you know, it's fine. It's easier not to put she, her, hers or he, him is next to my name. Why do I have to do that? So I think that just because people are seeing it more does not necessarily mean that there's massive amounts of progress. Uh, But at the same time, 
it's good that people are seeing it more and it's and it's out there. And I think we are inching, you know, inching forward. So what do you think the pushback is to pronouns? That is such a good question. I often I get so frustrated when I'm talking to like a liberal person and they're like, I just don't understand. Like, it's fine. It's like, what? Like, why is it so difficult for you to just put your pronouns after your name or to use somebody's correct pronouns? I mean, I think people are afraid of anything that deviates from the gender binary. Like, they're just so comfortable with that. And especially if they their entire life as a cisgender person have never had to question or really think about gender on a deep level. It's hard for them to imagine or to grasp that other people have to do that. But so I, I, I get I get that it's hard to grasp that. But I don't understand why they're not more willing to learn or why they get so defensive and frustrated about it. Um, yeah, people get very uncomfortable around gender and very insistent on this gender binary that they've been taught and that they're comfortable with. And if anything deviates from that, they kind of freak out, even if they're like, I'm a good liberal in other ways. Yeah. So. so you think it's it's a discomfort because it's new primarily? Yeah, I think yeah, it's hard to say why they get just so yeah, it's new they've existed in, you know, in this like realm of comfort of gender binary for their whole lives. They don't yeah, they don't and it's a they're incapable of like grasping like another another perspective um they, yeah, it's inter- I've, I'm honestly still trying to figure this out myself. Maybe someday I will. But, like, I will be having conversations with people who are very liberal, who do great things for liberal causes um, and who I'm very close to. And then I'll bring up pronouns and they'll just roll their eyes. And, you know, I'm not going to take the time to, you know, to do that. And I don't understand that. Why can't we just have it like this? And I don't understand why they're so annoyed and why it puts them out so much to understand, to, like, take a little bit of time to understand this or at least to just respect somebody and use their pronouns. Um, I, I don't quite understand the level of like a, upsetness there, especially with liberal people. So, if you have any thoughts, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't solved this one <laughs> yeah, either. I know. Uh, but I, I guess it seems to me that in some ways, what you're doing in terms of your journalism is a way where, if it's if newness is the issue, if it's like I'm discom- I'm uncomfortable because I don't understand this. One way you could try to address that is, okay, well, here's, here's some information, right? Here's, uh, you know, here's a history or here's the whole, uh, you know, the whole June edition of the reader. Here's just more familiarity. So at least when you're exposed to it, it's not this, like, drastically crazy new concept, right? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, another one on your list here as we get closer to contemporary times here is we have uh, Megan Hunt being uh, elected. And did you talk to Megan at all? I did I not talk to her. I talked to some of her friends, but I noticed on Twitter that she liked tweets about this, and I was like, ooh, we got Megan Hunt's attention. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, no, I didn't talk to every individual person on there. Um, I spent a lot of time, actually, uh, another part of this project, and maybe you were going to bring this up later, is I, I reached out you know, to a lot of members of the LGBTQ community and asked if they would be willing to write narratives about their experience as an LGBTQ person in Omaha or in Nebraska in 2021, and if they're an artist, also submit artwork. Um, and I was like, is anybody going to do this? Are we going to have two submissions? Am I going to be telling my editors, like, push back the deadline, push back the deadline, we don't have anything. And I put it on Twitter, and, like, within an hour, the response was just overwhelming. Like, people were DMing me, people were DMing the reader, people were liking tweets and retweeting it. Um, yeah, and I ended up with, like, 12 people who had contributed to this and really wrote these incredible, like, honest, very bold narratives about their lives um, and also had done really cool artwork. Um, I'm not an artist, so I was very <laughs> impressed with their work. Um, yeah, maybe you were going to ask me about that later, but I spent a lot of time talking. Those are people that I talked to a lot as well and was in connection correspondence with. So so what did you learn from those? Yeah, I'm, 
learned how talented people are with art. <laughs> which yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm also not, I can't draw anything at all. So all art's pretty impressive to me. The, the, my bar is pretty low. But. I know. And the quantity of it they were sending me to, I was like, I could spend my whole life on one of these things. But great, you've popped out 12 last week. Um, yeah, you know, I learned, I think one thing I learned from that is how in, interconnected the LGBTQIA2S plus community in Omaha is. People would, you know, I'd be emailing somebody or talking to somebody and they would be like, reach out to this person. I'd be like, oh, I reached out to that person because another person said to. Or I'd just be talking to somebody on the phone and they would be like, oh, I can't believe you're including so-and-so. That's so great. I knew them way back in the day. Like everybody seems to know each other and really have each other's back. Um, And, you know, I learned about Queer Night in in Omaha, which is a a queer space, um, oftentimes a performance space for people to go. It's located at the Sydney, and it seems like they have a really great community around that. Um, I got to talk to John Paul uh, Gurnett quite a bit, and he's somebody who's very involved with that over there. I think he might be one of the founders of it as well. Um, Yeah, and was telling me about, again, just like the interconnectedness of the community. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with writer Leah Cates, who compiled Queer Nebraska, a timeline commemorating milestones in LGBTQ Nebraska history, and it's available now through the reader as part of their Pride feature this June. So, I mean, it seems like the response has been pretty big to this, right? I mean, is it, is it more than you expected? Um, I think we had some really great people who on social media who had contributed to the project who were great about spreading it and sharing it. Yeah, I, you know, I think I actually I was expecting it to do pretty well just because when I was talking to all these people, they were so engaged with it and they knew so many people and they were so, like, reliable and just excited to contribute to it. So because of how awesome the people that I was talking to were, I was like, they're going to make sure that people see this. And they did. You know, we, I did. I put effort into our usual social media rollout. I still want to roll out one piece of artwork a day, you know, maybe for the rest of Pride Month. Um, I'm still hoping to do that. But, you know, I, I did that. But I was like, these people are going to carry this. And, you know, I was very pleased with the feedback and haven't gotten any negative feedback either, um, which means either conservative people were like, OK, this is happening right now, or they didn't read it, one of the two. But all, it's all in positive feedback. So, Well, so I guess that, that goes back to sort of what I was talking about at the beginning, which yeah. is if if you're somebody who in today's world can kind of pick the news that you want to be exposed to. So, like, I follow, you know, however many people on Twitter, and I can kind of make a bubble if I want to. Um, you know, d- do you worry that something like this is kind of, uh, you know, in some ways preaching to the choir? Not that it's wrong to do that, because obviously it still has its own uh, benefit. People are enjoying it. That's probably the main thing, right? But, I mean, th- do you worry about, like, how do you get this in front of the eyes of people who maybe wouldn't automatically click on it or buy the issue? Yeah, I think with this specifically, it's a little bit difficult to do that because it's being shared in those queer circles. I mean, I think the reader has a ton of followers across our social media accounts, and I'm quite positive that not all those people are liberal, or even if they are liberal, that they're accepting of this sort of thing. Um, I also know of liberal liberal people in my life who might see it, um, and they might be, you know, accepting of gay people, but they might not really understand trans people, and those might Mm -hmm. be the people who are like, I don't use pronouns, and you might see this and be like, oh, maybe I should start using people's, you know, correct pronouns. Um, So I think this is something... It came up. I did an article about multicultural social studies curriculum prior to this and, you know, the need for change in Nebraska. And that was something where that kind of blew up in its own, in its own way, in, in, in a good way, meaning a lot of people saw it. Um, and that was something that is now on, like, the social studies website for Nebraska. So if you go on there, like, 
they actually put it there and like educators had to see it. So that was something that because of the nature of the thing, like I'm sure people on all sides of the debate saw it. So that was something that did get in front of them because it's like, hey, this big article just came out about Nebraska social studies. Like, okay, people involved in social studies in Nebraska need to take a look at this. So sometimes, you know, like in that instance, it's pretty easy to make it happen. This may be a little bit more difficult, but and I, yeah, I do worry and wonder about preaching to the choir, but I, I'm sure that with social media rollouts, like somebody saw this who maybe wouldn't have thought of this stuff before. So, so talk about the social studies article. Give me, give me an overview of what exactly it was about and what impact it had. Yeah, so that article, uh, that was a really, yeah, it actually was the cover story for our March issue, I think. Um, and that was about, they, they recently made changes to social studies curriculum uh, in Nebraska that was, I think, a year. It's been a hot second since I've been working on this article, but like a year or so. They're, they're, still in char- they're still in the process of making these changes to make it, you know, more inclusive for the first time ever. In the social studies curriculum, they mention LGBTQ people. Um, and but, but actually, like, all of the, you know, all of these things that they're creating are not the curriculum per se. It's, it's guidelines that all of the schools have. So it's really up to individual districts and individual classrooms to be implementing these things. So, like, at the state level... They're really making an effort, but whether it's happening in the individual classroom is honestly up to the whims and the training and the knowledge of the individual teacher. And teachers have a really difficult job, and a lot of them just might not be educated in this to begin with. Um, so, it, it and what I did is I, first I talked to people at the state level who were like, yeah, we tried really hard. We think it's really good. And then I talked to students who were like, what? Like, something changed? Like, no, like, it's pretty bad. Like, my curriculum is whitewashed, and I don't see myself at all. And actually, X, Y, and Z was offensive to me as a person of color. So there was a major disconnect there. Uh, and some students, by the way, have had good teachers and said good things, but there was that big disconnect between the two of them. So it was putting those voices in conversation with each other in the article. Um, and yeah, it did really well. I think I got a lot of eyes in Nebraska Social Studies. It's now on the homepage of the Nebraska Social Studies website. Um, another thing I did with that is I got my hands on the textbook that these kids were using and reading and saying bad things about. And I, you know, I, I just like started flipping through and I was like, what the heck? Like, so, you know, they were saying, um, that, you know, people who were enslaved, they were like, they, you know, they worked very hard, but sometimes their masters treated them well. And I was like, what, what's happening right now? You know, like things like that in these books. And they're kind of outdated to begin with. They're like 10 years old. But like even then, it's like, seriously, like what is happening? Um, and I actually, I know that you asked about the impact. I got a textbook caption changed because mm-hmm. I, yeah, I posted about it online, tagged the company, and they were like, yeah, you're right. That was bad. We have to change that. Um, and that was just something saying, it was just women saying that women were treated with respect and treated very well in gold rush towns and you know in, in the 1900s and I did a little more research and I was like okay there are instances of rape there are instances of abuse like no they were not you know treated respectfully so I pointed all of that out um, because that was the part like I rolled them out on social media individually and then also had it embedded in the article uh, so that was yeah one of the things that it caught their attention yeah it seems like a weird <laughs> detail to throw in if it's just made up you it know? was yeah it was I think because in some towns like they actually in there were some instances sure people would like treat them okay and in our you know rush to make American history all seem okay that's what got put in there but there were also and it you know as with everything it was along class lines so if they were wealthier sure like they might be treated well if not they might be 
essentially like strippers and, and dancers for them and, and not be treated well. So it just depended on, you know, your social class as well for that particular detail. Yeah. I remember just seeing random details in history books as a kid. Like when I was in high school, I remember there, I think it was something like it was talking about Andrew Jackson's wife and it said Andrew Jackson's wife, whatever her name was, uh, who was very attractive. What? I just remember these details. I'm like, why? How is this relevant at all if she's attractive? Like, this has not come up anywhere else. But uh, I guess as far as your broader point goes, um, it seems like there's there's kind of a – as far as being more inclusive to different voices in history, you run into problems not even just with the teachers but with, you know, school boards, sometimes with, uh, you know, the, at the state level. Maybe it's the governor. And obviously it's a hot-button issue right now where we have a lot of restrictions in what can be taught about uh, the history of slavery across the yeah. country. So, I mean, it seems like, I don't know if there's a whole lot of specifically, I don't know if Governor Ricketts has talked about some of this, but it seems like there's kind of a national fight going on right now about what to do with American history specifically and uh, who gets to say it, who gets to be included in it, and how they're described. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts on where that is right now? Yeah, definitely. And I just, that you made also a good point that reminded me of something else, and that is, some of the teachers want to do more, but they're concerned that parents will get upset, parents will report it to the principal, and the teacher mm-hmm. could lose their job. And that's a very real fear that a lot of teachers have. Uh, yeah, but in terms of the national debate, and I think critical race theory is, you know, something that comes up a lot, um, you know, which is really looking into race and into <laughs> legacy of, you know, systemic racism, you know, in, in the country. That's something that's been coming up as conservative people are pushing back against that. Um, and yeah, it definitely is a debate, I think, as you know, people of color and and the discrimination that they've faced is really coming to the forefront more and people are having these reckonings and people get very panicky about what we're teaching our kids and, you know, they want to create young patriots, but that's, you know, excluding a lot of people. So, yeah, hopefully there will be progress there. But, yeah, I've definitely been noticing these debates. And also with Pete Ricketts recently, I think he was concerned about the health education standards like there. And I think they just agreed to take a few steps back with that probably in in the wrong direction. I think I could be getting this wrong, but I think that they're going to wait a little bit longer before they put through any new standards. But he was concerned about them teaching about sexuality, you know, in in a health class, I think, and like transgender issues. I think that was his, you know, concern with it. So, yeah, that's one of the things I kind of want to talk about in general, which was that you've written this, you know, it's, you know, a start at least to what does a queer history of Nebraska look like? Um, but it's it's in the reader. It's not in necessarily like a textbook that's being taught. Right. And it seems like that is something that will be a fight over the future, which is, you know, just does this get in? And as far as, you know, what the teachers will do a lot of the time, I think it's just controversy can get you in trouble at your job, yeah. which is maybe more of a motivating factor than like what absolutely needs to be in here. Definitely. So I don't know. Are you Are you optimistic that starting a project like this can ultimately – get into textbooks, get into classrooms, become kind of an accepted, just broader Nebraska history? Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome if it could, if it could catch the eye of teachers and they could, you know, start using things like this in the classroom. Definitely optimistic there. You know, something like this can educate people who maybe want to do a good job and they're just learning more from this and becoming more aware of it. But, you know, the fight is to make sure that those individual principals and those individual districts are willing to allow their teachers to, to talk about it. And I think that the revised state standards give a little more protection for that, which is a, a good thing. Um, but I also know that the districts wouldn't talk to me for this article, and it's possible that they were just overwhelmed with COVID stuff, which I understand it's been a really difficult year for them. But 
they just refused to let me talk to anybody to the point where I had two people from major districts in Omaha who were willing to speak with me. And then the district came in and was like, actually, no, they can't. It's like, okay, it's not like these people are overwhelmed and have a lot of COVID stuff going on. And I'm coming in and being like, hey, you have to answer these questions. Like, they have things they want to say, and you're stopping them from saying that. And maybe they just want to stay out of, like, any potential controversy. But, uh, you know, it left me with left me with some questions about questions there. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, history is kind of a – it's difficult to think about. A lot of people talk about, oh, in the history books, you know, so-and-so will be vindicated. And I always feel like there is this optimism. They're like, we'll know who the good guys and the yeah. bad guys are in 50 years. And when you think about what you learned in high school history or whatever it might be, like what makes it into the history book, it's so much more complicated and muddy. I mean, how, I mean, how, do, you, how do you think this current era will be covered in, in history books? I mean, I hope it's – covered well and with centering the voice of people of color because and people from under-resourced communities because that's who bore the brunt of this pandemic in many instances and you know that's when we're fighting with the George Floyd protests the Breonna Taylor protests when we're saying their names like that's that's who we're talking about and this was a major uh you know racial reckoning it's it's hard to say how that will be covered down the road uh you know if it looks like how things are covered back then now it seems likely that it might be like, oh, you know, we pushed for progress and we won and that was a good thing. But it's told from the perspective of white people and it's telling the white people that helped out, maybe throwing in a couple names of people of color, because that's what tends to happen now is we say like, yes, it's good. You know, more equality is good. They won. That's good. But we're whitewashing and, and, and forgetting about a lot of the really bad things that happened there. And also about the people of color and, you know, the people it, we're focusing on the white men, you know, basically who who helped with this. So if it's anything like it has been, that might be what it looks like. But I'm hopeful that maybe one of the things that also will come out of this period is centering the voices of people of color and, and queer people um, in history more. So, yeah. So, so what other ambitions do you have then as far as I know you, you're kind of you maybe don't want to let go of journalism, but maybe also not be completely, you know, stuck in the middle of it, not being editor in chief of things forever. What, what other journalistic ambitions do you have? Uh, you know, I'm de- so for the next until I go to graduate school, which will be the earliest I can go for COVID reasons, um, and just you know, with the way everything, the way admissions processes work, is, is fall of 22 is the early 2022 is earliest anybody can apply. So until that time, I will still be at the Reader. Um, I actually took on a new like longer term position with them for the next year and a half, where I'm doing all kinds of other things with social media and the morning newsletter. I push that out and subscriptions and like you know just all kinds of other things for them. So I'm hoping that. As I'm doing that, I can still carve out editorial time and keep writing these kinds of articles. Yeah, and then down the road more, like as I go into graduate school and that kind of thing, I'm I'm hoping one of the things I'm doing as I'm looking into graduate schools is hopefully finding advisors that embrace like a more creative and journalistic writing style because not all of them do. Some of them are very set in their academic ways and you have to just write it that way and it's that way or the highway. So I want to make sure that my advisor will embrace that so hopefully I can write a dissertation that way and I can be writing papers that way throughout graduate school and then can continue that into, you know, postgraduate. And I'd love to be, yeah, it would be cool to be teaching in an academics at an institution, but also to make a name for myself and maybe carve out a niche combining academic writing with, you know, journalistic writing centered around women and gender and popular culture and other social justice issues and getting those articles out there and having a success in that way. So... Yeah, I hope yeah. I hope you can be another. In addition to Roxanne Gay, you'll be on my <laughs> list of people who are not Larry the Cable Guy. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else about uh, anything we talked about here that you want to go over before I let you go here? 
you know, not necessarily. I just I really appreciate this opportunity. It was so great talking to you. Had a lot of fun. Thank you, you know, for asking me on the show and, and reading the article and supporting it. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's available both in print and online. I guess there's there's maybe more to come. There's maybe a revision on the way uh, with some additions. Sure. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna revise one thing, add a couple things, so that'll be coming out. Um, and then hopefully more social media rollout um surrounding this too. And then yeah, I'm working on longer term that trans kids in schools article as well. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. Really appreciate it again. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukwitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of our conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and leave us a review. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.